0: Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral and it is my real pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. Welcome. It's been said that politicians are people who when they see light at the end of the tunnel, order more tunnel. And jokes about politicians are nearly as numerous as those about the clergy. To focus in on politicians, though, the people with all their strengths and weaknesses, especially as an election looms, can be a very real distraction from the vital and urgent issues uh, politics addresses, or should be addressing and of course the way policies translate into human lives and that of our planet for good or ill. And that's why I'm delighted that we have this exciting and very timely debate here this evening. Beyond election day, power, money, government and responsibility. This is an event brought together by the St. Paul's Institute in partnership with our friends at Theos and together for the common good and it's been as good as ever to work with them both. I simply now want to hand over to the chair for the evening. Canon Angus Ritchie is the Executive Director of the Centre for Theology and Community, based in the heart of East London. Angus is an Anglican priest, a writer, teacher, and a passionate worker for community transformation. He's another great friend to the St Paul's Institute, and I'm pleased to say that you're in safe but challenging hands this evening. So, welcome again, and Angus.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening. In just eight days' time, polling will be nearly over in this most closely fought of elections. And already, there has been a huge amount spoken and written about party politics beyond election day tonight though we're taking a rather wider view we won't be asking our speakers to endorse or advise us how to vote for a particular political party we are standing back and putting party politics in the context of what you might call small p politics, the task we all share of discerning a common good and building a common life. The word politics comes from the Greek word for city. How do we live together in community? And so I hope you won't be too offended if I suggest that in that sense everyone here is a politician, or certainly should be. So. What our panel of speakers are helping us to think about is how we do that, how we build a common life together more effectively. And in that sense, each one of us is an actor in tonight's event. What really will make it a success is whether the discussion we have together helps you, inspires and informs you in your action beyond election day. It may, if you haven't yet decided, provide you with some questions to inform you as you weigh up the offerings of the different political parties. But I hope however you cast your ballot, this will help you to think about how in your community, your neighborhood, your workplace, we can work together and harness our common power to work for a common good. As I say, we have a great panel of people with a great wealth of experience to help us think about all that, to inspire and inform us in our action. You've come to hear them, not to hear about them, so I'm not going to give you a great long biography of each of them. They've all got a wealth of experience and the biographies are in your programmes. We want to hear from them. We have Shami Chakrabati, the director of Liberty, giving us a perspective from civil society. We have Connor Kehoe, a director at McKinsey & Company, to give us a business perspective. We have Loretta Minghella, the chief executive of Christian Aid, uh, speaking about faith-inspired social action. And we have Professor Craig Calhoun, the director of the London School of Economics. And as Shami comes to the podium to give the first talk, just a word about how you can get involved in this conversation. You should all in your programme have a piece of paper. It's got a hashtag if you want to tweet questions, and I'll be reading some of them out. And, or you might want to write down your question and then just wave it, and one of the stewards will come and collect it. And then in the question time, I'll invite some of you up to the, the microphone at the back to pose your questions to the panel. So over to you.
2: Thank you. Um, It's, as always, an enormous privilege to to be here in this beautiful cathedral and to be here at such an important moment for for everyone in our country and beyond. Um, Be afraid. Be be very afraid. Uh, Once upon a time, a well-known tabloid newspaper called me the most dangerous woman in Britain. (laughs) Um, Sadly, that title has, I think, now been stolen by um, a very popular politician north of the border. For this, we will sue. (laughs) Um, So so what was it it that that made me so dangerous in in the eyes of that particular tabloid newspaper? Well, I believe in fundamental rights and freedoms. I believe in human rights, not just as a system of law, but as a system of ethical values that bind together the entire human family. I'm not here to give uh, a law lecture. I could quote all sorts of instruments, the Universal Declaration, the European Convention, our own Human Rights Act, all, all frameworks very much under attack, even in the current general election campaign. I could do that, but that would take too much time. So instead, let me sum up everything that I believe about human rights with with three words. Dignity, equality and fairness. Dignity as in a belief that every single individual human life anywhere on the planet is precious. Every newborn baby, every newly arrived asylum seeker anywhere on the globe is precious. Not because they're good, or they're bad, or they're British, or they're American, or they're of any particular nationality, gender, race, sexuality, but just because they're alive. Not a good person or a bad person, not someone who's already made their contribution to society, but every single human being just because they're alive. And respect for this idea of dignity is, uh, is not always easy. It does sometimes require respect for people who haven't always respected others, and even for people who have, to some extent, lost their self-respect. And equality, not, not as an, uh, an idea of formal equality where everyone has to be exactly the same or has to have exactly the same amount of talent or money or whatever it is, but, but equal treatment under the law. And fairness and, uh, specifically, the idea of procedural fairness. Nothing bad should happen to you without a fair hearing. And, in particular, when you're, when you're facing um, criminal charges and a, a, a severe detriment, you ought, to, uh, you ought to be presumed innocent, you ought to have access to justice, you ought to have advice and representation. So, dignity, equality and fairness. But the greatest of these, I argue, is equality. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that the the human right to equal treatment under the law is more important even than rules against torture and slavery and the respect for your privacy and your free speech and all these vital, these freedom of thought, conscience and religion, all of these vital human rights. Why is equal treatment the most important human right of all? Well, because in my experience, Whilst critics say they don't believe in human rights, they say that they're um, selfish libertarian um, values, or they say that they're politically correct gone mad, in truth, everybody loves human rights, their own. And those of people like themselves, and their friends, and their family, and people they identify with, it's other people's rights and freedoms that are a problem. And in my view, there would be no torture and no modern-day slavery and no blanket intrusions into people's privacy or freedom of thought, conscience and religion and so on if, uh, if we treated others as we would like to be treated, if we walked around in other's shoes and so on. And at a general election time, we do need to remember that democracy has to continue in between elections. democracy is more than just casting a vote once every five years. If democracy were just about casting a vote every five years and allowing the winner or the coalition of winners to take all, what would stop a leader that swept to power with a popular majority? I know that's unlikely in the the election that's coming, but it has happened in the past. Uh, A charismatic leader sweeps to power with a popular mandate and then decides that they will lock up their opponents, they will censor the critical press, they will do all sorts of things to interfere with people's civil rights and freedoms until democracy itself is shut down. That is not a dystopian nightmare. That is something that has happened in my lifetime in other parts of the world. Which is why I say democracy is not just about voting and it's not just about majoritarianism. It is also about fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law. These principles keep democracy alive and without them, democracy would eat itself. It would be very short-lived and illusory indeed. So what of this charge that, um, that rights are somehow selfish and uh, they, don't, they don't build mutuality and they don't allow responsibility in society? What do I say to that charge? Firstly, I say we are bound by so many laws in, uh, in modern democracies that it's not much to ask that the powerful owe a few responsibilities to the people. The, the second thing to say is that, is that because rights and freedoms are an ethical as well as um, a legal framework, we cannot deliver them if we don't, uh, if we don't respect them for each other. I cannot deliver um, free speech for any individual in society if other people aren't prepared to listen. We cannot protect one person's privacy if we don't sometimes take legal steps to stop other people intruding too much into their space. Tom Paine, the great rights activist, wrote about the drafting of the French Declaration of Rights many, many years ago. And he remarked that during the drafting process some had said that surely um, a Bill of Rights needs to be matched by an equal and opposite Bill of Responsibilities. He noted that this, this demonstrated a mind that had reflected, but reflected not enough. Because a Bill of Rights is by reciprocity a Bill of Responsibilities as well. And our Human Rights Act, that, re- that re- reflects Churchill's post-war legacy, is not is not a selfish or ultra-libertarian document. It is it is a set of values that acknowledges that human beings are not islands; they are individuals, precious individuals, but social creatures as well. And that is why so. Many references in the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights are to what is necessary in a democratic society. And indeed, all your civil and political rights and freedoms reflect your need as a human being to rub along with others. Of course you don't want to be killed or tortured or enslaved or locked up without charge. Of course you want um, the right to a fair trial, but you need, you need privacy. But there also must be lawful surveillance because we are, so- we are social creatures. There must be speech and conscience and association, association all to reflect your need to engage with wider society as an individual and a social creature. These instruments are at stake in this election by some powerful political and media interests who want to pull Britain out of the Human Rights Convention and scrap the Human Rights Act. And they want to do this in the very summer that we celebrate 800 years of Magna Carta and they will all drink champagne at Runnymede and wrap themselves in that great instrument, which was an inspirational instrument for 1215, but the struggle for rights and freedoms did not end there. Let me end by remarking on that contradiction and that hypocrisy with the words of the great legal philosopher Tony Hancock Remember Magna Carta did she die in vain Thanks for listening
1: Thank you very much just Do keep your comments and questions coming in as you hear the different speakers and as they inspire and challenge and provoke you. So now, Connor Kehoe
3: from McKinsey & Company. Thank you very much. Um, Two big ideas drive how large companies, or as the lawyers know them, corporations are run today. Shareholder value and stock market efficiency. And my challenge is to keep you awake while talking a little about the history and the current state of thinking of these two big ideas of uh, my generation. Firstly though, I wanted to say that the corporation is a wonderful invention and doing very well, thank you very much. Um, Some people describe it as an imaginary person that can enter into contracts with you and me and other corporations and these can be enforced by the courts. If you and I have a business idea, um, we see an opportunity, we can get investors going on with their daily lives, usually, by the way, friends and family initially, to put a little money in, and they know by law, if we've set up a corporation, their liability is limited to that money. They don't, by the way, get any money back unless there's a surplus after everyone else is paid, and the other people being paid are usually the tax man at the head of the queue, workers, suppliers, and this surplus is known as profit, so that's the deal. Shareholders can put money in, they have limited liability, they can get some out too, but only if everybody else is being paid off. So popular are these imaginary people, these corporations, that their population in the UK is now some 3.4 million as of February this year. And on, of course, unlike real people, companies can't really be held responsible. It's hard to shake their hand or understand how they're feeling. They're a fiction. And as one English jurist complained in the 18th century, he said, corporations have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. They therefore do what they like. So as a society, having allowed these imaginary people to come into existence, who are the real people responsible for their behavior? Well, the answer is straightforward almost in all jurisdictions. It's the directors of the company. And who appoints the directors in most jurisdictions? It's the shareholders. And for large corporations, the ones that I know, who are these shareholders? Well, actually, in the main, they are other large organizations. The biggest in Europe is the Norwegian Oil Fund, which is the property of ordinary, if lucky, Norwegians. I say lucky because their oil fund is worth about 200,000 euros per head at this point in time for the four million Norwegians. So they're the biggest equity holders or shareholders in Europe. Based in the UK, the two largest long-term owners are the university superannuation scheme, which is the pension fund of university employees, and the BT pension scheme, followed by the large insurers. But perhaps the biggest of all, if you put them together, are the pension funds of the state employees of the states of the United States of America, the firemen, the teachers, the civil servants, the municipal workers. So that's the system, as it were, today. Having been elected, what should directors have in mind as they guide these companies? Well, first and foremost, they need to know what's going on. And this is taking more time than many of them expected to spend. Too complex to understand is less and less accepted as an excuse when things go wrong. Of course, we expect these directors to ensure that their charges obey the law in all they do. And further, it's reasonable to expect that they adhere to the norms of society. But obeying the law is a bit of a minimum. It's a low bar. How do we set things up so that directors guide their companies in society's best interest? After all, it's society at large that allows corporations to exist. Well, an answer was given by the famous moral philosopher Adam Smith. The answer he gave was his invisible hand. He said, that an owner, now he wasn't dealing with corporations all those centuries ago, he was dealing with entrepreneurs or merchants as he called them, an owner seeking his own profit in a competitive market serves society very well. The search for profit means he's not wasteful, competition keeps him on his toes, preventing him from gouging his customers with high prices and forcing him to innovate, least to be overtaken by a more nimble competitor. It's as if he was guided by an invisible hand to serve us all well, when really, what he was after was more profit. Indeed, Smith felt that the entrepreneur did more good for society by looking after number one than by trying to do good for society. Here's what he said, he said, by pursuing his own interests, he frequently promotes that of society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I've never known much good done by those who affected trade for the public good. It's an affectation indeed, not very common amongst merchants and very few words need be employed to dissuade them from it. Now Smith was talking about real, not imaginary people. So what about our imaginary people, these corporations? Well Milton Friedman and Michael Jensen in the 70s and 80s proposed that directors should run our vast enterprises, our corporations, to maximize shareholder value. So this is the the first important idea that's driven managers in my generation. Shareholder value is not just today's profits, but all the profits you can see out into the future. The shareholders, they argue, are last to be paid, so maximizing their value maximizes value for society. Everyone else gets paid along the way. Competition and the search for profit are the regulators, much as in Adam Smith's time, that make these imaginary people seeking long-term profits serve us all. Professor Friedman argued, actually, that to do anything else would be profoundly negative for freedom, he said, imagine, if a company started using company money that would otherwise go to shareholders to fund a social initiative that was not in some way in the interests of its shareholders and their investment in that company. Why they would be taxing the shareholders the BT pensioners and enacting social policy that found favour with them. Do we want them to do this? Surely it's the role of politicians accountable to us all, not unelected managers and directors, to tax and decide where taxes should be spent. Of course, shareholders, once they've received their money, are quite entitled to espouse any cause and give their money to it, as are employees. But these imaginary persons and their guardians, the directors, need stricter guidelines when spending other people's money, Professor Friedman argued. Now, this doesn't prevent directors from, for instance, as Unilever does, espousing sustainability, even beyond that required by current laws, if they judge it to be in the long-term interest of the company and its shareholders. Nor does it stop them from paying more than the absolute minimum amount of tax if they feel it will enhance the company's reputation and its long-term health. Or building extra capacity into their schools to serve the local community as well as their workers in African mining towns which quite a few of them do but they must be mindful that they're spending other people's money then second question is how do we measure these profits going out into the future and that's the second big idea if you like that's come out of the economics uh, profession and that affects managers a lot this other big idea is the idea of the efficient market theory that the share price for a quoted company efficiently um, puts a value on all of those future profits that will accrue to shareholders. We've believed that, and as a result of it, to get our CEOs thinking about shareholder value, we've loaded them up with shares or options on shares. The problem is that there's quite a bit of evidence that the market's a bit short-termist. It's actually not so good at reflecting value way out, way out into the future. And even if you disagree with that idea, there's plenty of evidence that the CEOs, the chief executive officers, and the directors believe the market is short-termist. So they behave accordingly. They may boost short-term profits at the expense of research and development, or indeed they may even take actions that damage the company's long-term reputation to maximize short-term value. Some argue that those who go out of their way to avoid paying tax are falling into this trap, hurting their reputation by not paying sufficient tax and putting, in a sense, mortgaging the future. So we're left with a, a bit of an intellectual vacuum I would propose in business. Maximizing long-term shareholder values is probably still has some legs. It seems a good guide for directors to guide companies in the interest of society. That's the purpose, guide these corporations in the interest of society. It's up to citizens then, at real, not imaginary, to spend money on social programs through the ballot box or through their own personal philanthropy, not for corporations to do it. But assuming that this long-term value is measured by short-term stock prices may be leading people badly astray. So what new measurement might they use? Well there I have to tell you, the search is on, the debate is engaged, the answer won't be simple. Thank you for your attention. thank you thank you you. lots of
1: food for thought and as Loretta prepares to speak just a reminder if you would like to pose a question either tweet it and we can read it out uh, or fill in one of these pieces of paper in your program and if you want to read it out do put your name on it as well as the question thank you Loretta
4: I've recently returned from the Philippines on a visit to see the recovery work we've been doing in response to the massive typhoon which struck there at the end of 2013. Over 6,000 people died, over 4 million were forced from their homes. A little over a year on, the transitional housing is in place and people are beginning to earn a living again, no longer just relying on handouts. And on my first community visit to Tacloban, one of the place's hardest hit, I was welcomed by hundreds of genuinely smiling and grateful faces. It took only the gentlest of questions for those smiles to evaporate, for the tales of bereavement and trauma to pour out. In this coastal community, a huge body of water six meters high had swept in wrecking homes and carrying people caught at ground level upwards and inland at the same time, claiming many victims on the way. One woman told me that for her, it had been a case of swimming along in this body of water, with her four children calling out, Mum, Mum, how long do we have to keep swimming? And she replied, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. And she said to me, I didn't know how I would keep on swimming. And then came the challenging question, so what are you doing about climate change? Because she knows as I know that climate change is making extreme weather events like Typhoon Haiyan more and more likely and that without urgent and radical action to cut carbon emissions it's only a question of time until another massive typhoon strikes. I think we should hold her predicament and her question firmly in our minds during our discussions tonight. Because any any consensus about how we best approach the common good must be up to addressing the biggest enemies to that common good. Christian Aid's top three, which we identify as the three very biggest drivers of poverty, climate change, international tax dodging, and the scandal of gender inequality, which means that women and girls represent the large majority of people living in extreme poverty. Now arriving at some shed view of how to focus on the common good is a complex task which does lend itself to do what we're doing tonight, breaking it down into business and government and civil society. But that siloed approach is fraught with difficulty in the end because ultimately we have to transcend all of those divisions. I think that presents a challenge and an opportunity to each one of us on the panel, whichever part of the debate we start from. At Christian Aid we start from here. The poverty that we see is incompatible with our belief that every person is made in the image of God and so is of inherent dignity and infinite worth. The scandal of poverty means that whilst we have enough resources in the world to go round, 1.4 billion people in the world live below the extreme poverty line of $1.25 a day. And what we know is that poverty is not just about money. Poverty is about power, about the misdistribution of personal, social, political and, yes, economic power. And poverty is incompatible with the common good. So we need to respond to our desire for the common good by dismantling the environment in which poverty flourishes and putting in the building blocks of a world without poverty in which personal, social, political and economic power are truly shared. This is a world in which true charity flourishes. And I'm probably not using the word in the way that you think. Let me say a little bit more about what I mean. A common individual charitable impulse is, I think, one of sympathy, one that says, I'm sorry you're hungry that you've had an earthquake, don't have access to clean water. Let me, my government, my business help you get some food, some shelter, some water. I think all of us support and endorse these acts of charity and as we've seen with a tremendous response so far from the public to the Nepal earthquake we really really do need them and at the same time we recognize that as important as they are these acts of charity don't necessarily create more than a temporary sense of connection a less charitable impulse is the one about getting someone off the phone when they phone for a donation Uh, which may lead us to give them a small donation without any intention to repeat it. And at the business level, some CSR programs fall into that category, designed to keep the dividends flowing, the reputation intact, and NGOs from coming to the AGM. These apparently charitable activities, by creating an illusion of engagement, box ticked, actually facilitate disconnection. And then I think we have the most transformational notion of charity, which is all about building relationships of integrity, which pivot on the idea that we are all equal and that we all deserve a place at the table. We find this meaning in the older translations of the Bible where the word caritas is translated as charity, where modern versions use the word love. Charity, translated in a Christian sense, is about a full and wholehearted and demanding kind of love. It's not about short-termism, but relentless commitment to what is good for the other, manifested in right and just and loving relationships and in the deepest kind of giving. In pursuit of the common good, we need to get back, I'd say, to the richness of that biblical meaning and I think in that richness lies some of the learning about the path that individuals states governments and civil society need to tread there's been something of a a, an unhealthy standoff historically between different actors state government civil society you see it when people say the church should stay out of politics or argue that the state should not interfere at all with the possibility of free markets or personal privacy, or that civil society should not be talking to businesses. Standoffs may bring parties to the table, but they don't provide the stuff of real conversation, reconciliation, or transformation. I'm not saying there's no role here for personal responsibility. We can't expect businesses to change the world whilst we want to pay next to nothing for our clothes and not to ask if the person who made them got paid a living wage we have to ask ourselves what is my contribution what do I stand for am I doing what I can to create the environment in which poverty could be addressed the common good could be realized but given the massive challenges of climate change and tax justice and gender justice businesses and governments have a huge role to play that civil society just can't fill in on its own So whilst we have personal responsibilities, it's also right that we continue to hold businesses and governments to account. Without pressure from us, governments are prone to short-termism, to buckling under the lobbying of the business community in particular. And they, in any event, lack jurisdiction to address global problems in a wholly reliable way, as I know from my own work in financial regulation. Business leaders may well find themselves under too much investor pressure to focus on uh, the long-term gains. But at their best in acting together with us, with civil society, government and business have real capacity to drive decisions which will have a lasting, positive, transnational effect. Some of the great changes of the last 70 years bear witness to the power of civil society at its best. The dismantling of apartheid, the success of the civil rights movement in the US, the dropping of poor country debt. These changes bear witness to the power of people of like mind coming together around a common cause. To some extent, they indicate the power of vulnerability. How awesome it is when people put themselves on the line for the freedom of others. It's tough for governments and businesses to show vulnerability and that may be why they are so often stuck in a defensive pose which makes change more difficult. Well organised and well intentioned civil society actors can provide the political and the commercial cover necessary for long term common good decision making. Let me finish by taking you back briefly to the lady I met in Tacloban in the Philippines. If you donated to the Christian Aid or the DC Appeal for the 2013 typhoon, you helped her get back on her feet for now. But if we believe that she also deserves a share of the common good, then her question counts, her voice Counts. And she'll only have proof that it's paid off for her to ask me the question if the answer she gets shows government, business, and civil society acting together. Only by coming together can we hope to tackle the world's biggest challenges and really begin to build something worthy of calling the common good. Until then, we need to keep on swimming just a little bit longer. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Loretta. And now our final initial contribution from Professor
5: Craig Calhoun. Thank you very much. With the other panellists, I join in saying that it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be in this place, but in this place, I would say, we are challenged by the very architecture, as well as the history and the meaning of this place, to think a bit of higher purposes. And I fear that something that has happened to politics, as we understand it today, is that we no longer believe It can be about higher purposes. We believe it is inevitably about some choices and decisions among lesser purposes. Who becomes wealthier because the tax structure changes? Which region of the country prospers? Which party wins? We tend to lose sight of the very possibility that our lives together this common life, this common good we're talking about, is constituted and shaped in part by having and sharing some higher purposes, having a sense that we can be more than merely creatures of self-interests. Politics, I think, should be education as well as decision. And I fear our current campaigns are not meeting a high exam standard? Do we learn from these campaigns not only what this or that politician thinks or at least wants us to believe that he will do in our interests? Do we learn from these campaigns something about ourselves, ourselves together? Does it strengthen and enrich our capacity to think of our larger purposes? Politics, I think should be about a public life in which we grow individually and collectively in awareness and understanding. It is about discerning higher possibilities, not only choosing among baser ones. And we have plenty of big issues that demand this deeper sort of politics. Climate change, inequality, financial interdependence and the deep question of what it means to be in all of this together as a country and as a highly interdependent world. Campaigns often divide, but a crucial need is for shared purpose and solidarity. Politics can be about forging The polity, back to that issue of the root meaning that we think about, we don't just find ourselves in a polity in the United Kingdom. We have before us as an object of politics what it means to be in the United Kingdom, whether the United Kingdom will remain united or in fact will be pulled apart by different nationalisms. What institutions would make it worth valuing this united kingdom, which I fear is threatened, but which we should value? Politics can shape, can forge, can make the polity. We don't just find the polity already there. When politics works well, we choose not just policies, but the very institutions with which we live and which shape our common life. This calls for us to be able to discuss basic values and our capacities for this are not as developed as they might be. A second theme: when we speak of civil society, and indeed I agree very much that this has to be on the agenda, we shouldn't think of it as just outside of government in the market. There's a common everyday sense that says well there's the market, and there's government, and there's this other province of civil society. I think that we are rightly led to think about connections, as my predecessor did. It's right to think about society itself and not just the way it's carved up. One of the problems with speaking of civil society in this sector-specific way is that it rather accepts that government and markets don't have the kinds of shared responsibilities that civil society has. We shouldn't accept the notion that the market is a perfectly self-regulating system. We should recognize that that is a device by which we analyze it, that it's a partial truth, but that markets are interwoven in all aspects of our lives. The same for government. It's not just those people over in Westminster. Right? It is something through politics which is part of all of our lives in this. We should see society itself as civil insofar as it connects us in a self-regulating, and a civic way to each other and enables us to live lives we want. We cannot, after all, thrive without it. The common good, then, is a good that joins us in a common life. It is not just a different distribution of private goods. There are many private goods, and they should be distributed fairly. I have no problem with that notion, but it would limit us enormously if we lacked a sense of a common good that united us, that was ours only because it was shared. Think of the planet, climate change, extreme weather events, the inhabitation of the earth is shared, but think closer to home of community and the existence of community or the absence of it, because I think we often are worried that the word no longer signals what it once did in our lives, but is just another name for saying the place we happen to live. If we approach this as merely the sum of our private and separate individual interests and ask only about distribution, we miss the creation of real life together. And for this, we need public engagement, We need not just the institutions of government or market, nor even charitable institutions in civil society and others, but public engagement. We need to talk to each other. We need to be able to inform each other. We need to know each other to forge common purposes. Indeed, we even need universities to offer public knowledge, not only to contain knowledge within their boundaries. Business indeed remains basic in this business. And I would want to add one thing to the discussion of business. It's not just big business. When we think of business and the role of business, we shouldn't think just of the city of London and just of enormous corporations, we should think of small businesses and whether they thrive. Right? of local tea shops, of the dry cleaners, of all manner of small businesses that are part of the fabric of society and are hard to separate from what we call civil society or the public sphere because if we want to get together and talk in public, we go to that tea shop. And that's where we meet. We go to a restaurant. We are, businesses are part of our lives. They are not just that distant big business. And we should recognize entrepreneurs They're not a vanished thing of the past, they're part of that. People are starting businesses, our students at the LSEs, many of them want to shape a future by creating something new. They may want to be wealthy, that may not be an important goal, but they may see starting a kind of business, a social enterprise of one sort or another, as the way to help make a new and better world. And this is something that our political arrangements should enable, they should establish the conditions for engagement in business by a much wider variety of people. I would add on social responsibility of business that the social responsibility of business, small or large corporations, is not mere charity. Limit to, I think, the Milton Friedman way of thinking about that. I think that we need to see social responsibility as not just what you do with the money you make, but how you make it. Social responsibility is about the way business is conducted, the ethics, the principles, the way in which people are recognized in business and valued or not valued or treated with contempt. It's important that shareholder value not blind us to all the other stakeholders in businesses. Businesses have counterparts and suppliers and customers. They do their business in local communities. They depend on all of these. And it's important that we attend to market failures, including the production of illth. whether it is necessary in order to make money to make waste in the volumes that we make it, to put that waste into the public. And we need to ask, who carries this burden? The great 19th century English thinker John Ruskin coined a term that I think hasn't caught on enough. He said, we talk all the time about the production of wealth. What about the production of ilth, the bad stuff? How much ilth is being created in order to allow the creation and accumulation of wealth? And this is a question our public engagements should engage. Philanthropy also, I think, should be seen as a basic part of society. It's a more and more important social institution. Philanthropy returns wealth to social purposes to aspects of our lives together, often acting through civil society organizations. Still, government remains basic, basic for ensuring equality, as Shami's reminded us, for safety nets, for regulation, for enabling conditions, need government interacting with business, with civil society. A challenge for today is that government is mostly national, but global interconnections are escapable, inescapable to us all, and what we have taken to be our fixed national boundaries are in dispute and open to revision. This is a challenge for a common purpose at the level of government and we face it as a moral challenge and a political challenge. Take the issue of migration and the specific version of the deaths in the Mediterranean of so many people crossing to Britain and remind yourself that this isn't just happening because politics are bad somewhere else, in the Sudan or, the er- or Eritrea, or because there's poverty in the world and there shall always be the poor. It's happening because of our politics, our decisions in the UK and in Europe, big decisions like whether we will save people at sea and decisions we probably didn't even notice, like a decision by the European Union that made it impossible for potential refugees to register without first getting to Europe and created part of this flood of refugees. Politics is partly shared responsibility for what is done in our name. Shami very eloquently talked about dignity, fairness and equality and said the greatest of these is equality and in her very phraseology combined with being in this place, recalled 1 Corinthians, verse 13, right? Faith, hope, love, or charity. And I want to close by saying, love cannot be only equality. Love is connection. Love is our ability to connect to other people. And we connect not just to a big category of equals. We always and necessarily connect to real other people, and how we do it, has to be part of our political purpose.
1: Thank you very much for very different and I think hugely stimulating contributions. Uh, Do please, as the panel, have an initial uh, discussion to try and make some connections uh, between those contributions. Do please keep your questions coming in, either um, by writing them down and handing them into the stewards uh, or by tweeting them. Um, Just to kind of begin our discussion, I'm struck that the the last two contributions very much held up a, a kind of vision of the good. And perhaps the first two had a particular contribution on around processes, human rights, uh, the place that the, um, the market transactions have uh, in our lives and what is and isn't an appropriate way of harnessing them for the common good. And I just wanted to give the first two speakers a, an opportunity to begin by kind of connecting what they'd said into uh, that kind of vision that was set out in the last two talks. I mean, Shami, I thought it was very helpful your, um, your stress on actually rights have responsibilities. There's something reciprocal already there. But I suppose a, a question would be to, to what extent um, the language of rights and responsibilities, how it sits alongside a language of common endeavor and building up a common good. What place should those two have in our politics? How should we, Um, And how do we balance them in how we think?
2: Um, Well, thank you. If if I may just say, Hmm. uh, my um, observation of what links all four contributions, if I were to sum this up in one word, it would be internationalism. That was the word, that was really the reflection that I wrote down when I heard each of the other speakers, because this is ultimately a shrinking, interconnected planet. And I think that, that's a really important point to make during this particular political period as well because we are responding to the general election, not making party political points, but I think um, from, from a human rights perspective, the society that we're talking about, the commonality, the polity, all these words that, we're, that, that other speakers have mentioned has to be a global one. I have no doubt about that. And, um, and and yes, you know, you, you can use, you know, you can use language and concepts, and and uh, you know, um, and, and I of course agree that I don't mean equality as informal formal equality. What I really mean is equal treatment or non-discrimination, as lawyers describe it. But human beings might describe it even as empathy, or love, or solidarity. These are the words that other speakers have have used. But the, the most important theme I think in what's been said is that you know, just as the original, uh, the, the second speaker talked about, you know. Uh, markets now being international, corporations being international. Clearly charitable efforts have to be international. You know, that's, that's very much um, um, Christian Aid's work. Um, The bottom line is, why should internationalism just be for corporations, organised criminals and terrorists, um, (coughs) supra-governmental structures, why shouldn't internationalism also be for ordinary people and their values and ethics? Because um, that's the existential choice, it seems to me. Do we seek to be little Englanders or citizens with a few privileges in one tiny corner of the planet, or do we seek to be human beings um, bound to other human beings? beings everywhere. Thank you. Oh, please don't be polite.
1: <laughs> Connor, just thinking through um, your kind of characterization of what uh, in a sense how companies by being companies contribute to the common good. Um, what kind of conversation then should civil society organizations be having with companies if if this account is correct that their um, primary purpose is to maximize shareholder value that struck me as implying some limitations actually on what it's helpful um to
3: ask of companies morally well i mean the the challenge really is big companies are very powerful so we have to hold them accountable Um, And the question is how we do it and right now we use this simple device of um, shareholder value and in other countries it's shareholder and stakeholder value. I think the more enlightened Anglo-Saxon managers actually have stakeholder value in mind as well because you can't go very far if you destroy your suppliers or your customers. Um, And so this is the way we regulate them. At least we end up with boards of directors who aren't elected by the mass of the population and CEOs running these companies to their ethics and using their profits to their whim. So, how do we regulate them is perhaps what we're really searching for here. But I think there's common agreement that what we want to do is have them serve the common good. I've just described the mechanism we use today to do that. Now, some um, hopeful uh, things that are happening. First of all, sitting above them are these large long-term owners, pension funds and the like, and they are actually becoming more courageous because they're saying, we need to think not just about how much money we can make for our members, but what their lives will be like in 40 years' time. Now, they're skating a little bit on thin ice because some lawyers would tell them, no, you worry about the money, not about the environment, but they are getting more courageous. What tends to limit, by the way, their courage in long-termism is the reaction they get from the public at large and the press if they have a year when they haven't managed to meet the shareholder index returns. So that diminishes their courage just a little bit. The other hopeful thing that happens right now is that actually, mainly actually through the internet, the public is holding large companies to account more and they are reacting. So I can tell you of one large company where they are much more concerned about sustainability in the environment because they now know that their consumers who are in a very important population can rally quite quickly and oppose them. And they're not, the men and women involved believe in it too, but now they have a reason to take that course of action. They'll lose their reputation if they don't. For those interested, the two sectors of industry most concerned now about sustainability and taking uh, the most proactive stances are the consumer industries, for obvious reasons, but interestingly enough, also the mining industries. They're concerned about individuals um, as citizens, and they may not get their licenses if they don't act.
1: So there's something there about holding companies to account for, for that kind of impact. But in terms of um In terms of the funding organisations, charities might seek for common good activities, would it be fair to say an implication of what you're saying is um, some of that might be better sought through taxation than through inviting companies to expand their CSR budgets? If I was a vicar looking to fundraise, um, in a way we're talking about certain things you're arguing being more appropriately done by the state than by corporate social responsibility. That was quite an intriguing.
3: Absolutely. I, I, I really do think so because in a way the directors, if they're being sensible, need to think along the lines of they're taking a pound out of a BT pensioner's pocket unless they're furthering the cause of the company. If they believe they're furthering the cause of the company by giving money to a charity and enhancing its reputation and therefore actually maybe putting a pound back in the BT pensioner's pocket or even a pound yeah. 20 then they're actually skating on thin ice. They should give the money to the BT pensioner and you should go and collect the money from him for the charity or her. That's very helpful to know. What,
1: I mean, the the two contributors, Loretta and Craig, have really given us this vision of the common good. What's what's your response to to this in terms of the role of markets and companies and rights uh, in doing that? Any thoughts in response to this?
4: well I, I think it 's very interesting if you take the example of the, the way the debate 's gone around tax over the last uh, five years and really taken off um, very much in the last year or two that companies started off by saying to the likes of Christian Aid when we first started saying this was a development issue well you can 't really talk to us about that because we have to concentrate on the bottom line, and that 's our obligation, and we really can 't do any more than than the law requires of us, but we do know, don't we, that there are ways and ways of complying with your obligations around tax. There are serious choices that can be made, and there are policies that can influence those choices. So this very simple answer, well, it's, you know, as long as it's legal, it must be fine. <laughs> It can't really be the end of the debate. And I think that what we've seen is, with a lot of pressure from civil society over the last few years, companies are beginning to see that what they do has a moral dimension Mm -hmm. and that when they make those choices, they make them not just for the short-term bottom line, but with regard to a wider group of stakeholders. If you go into a country and you extract value from that country, it's not enough just to say, well, we provided some nice jobs and people got paid because that country that you're relying on for a robust policy framework that you want to do business in, it has to provide for its citizens. It does have an obligation, a bottom line obligation around health and education and so on. It has to make its money from somewhere. And so those decisions around tax have a moral dimension and it's great that companies have begun to realise that.
1: Craig, any comments on that?
5: Yeah. The I think in the overall question and the frame we should think of visions of the good certainly but also recognize the difference between visions of the good and limits on the bad. And often we let our discourses be dominated by how can we limit the bad, how can we prevent abuses, not what can we accomplish together. And I think that's one of the things that sets apart different interest groups in society, business, civil society and so forth. With regard to corporations and, and markets. I think briefly three things. One is we've been told for a long time, in the words of someone locally famous, there is no alternative. Um, The famous Margaret Thatcher-Tina line has had many, many different applications that there is no alternative to this particular arrangement of power and money and the organization of business. But there are always alternatives, and it changes. And so we need to get over that there is no alternative notion. And I don't mean just saying, oh, we're against business, there's an alternative business, I mean inside it. The world of corporations has changed dramatically in the era of the dominance of shareholder value because corporations have been turned into commodities bought and sold. Part of the consciousness of every CEO, and and usually the CFO as well, is what protections do we have against becoming against our will, the object of a takeover bid, the the losing the corporation. This has contributed to short-termism, but it's changed the whole work of corporations which among other things for many people lucky enough to work in them provided a relatively secure long-term form of employment. And part of the change is a loss of what I would call corporate social responsibility not as charity but as a responsibility to employees and the sense in which firms should see employees as stakeholders in the firms. and we should all see this change in the way capitalism works as changing the extent to which it's even possible for the CEO and the CFO to act on that responsibility because if they do it in a way that changes short-term equity values for their company, they'll be punished for it. So,
1: just making this kind of concrete in terms of what we can do about it, if, if we're working in a company or if we're involved in a civil society organization, what, what can we do to rebalance this? What, what can each of us do? To make a difference and to help companies to have that kind of responsibility, whether we're working inside them uh, or, or not? Well,
5: I'll give one answer, and I'm sure not have the other one, which is that for each of us, the first side is how we work, and that goes all the way from the CEO to everyone else in the firm, and whether we work with a sense of responsibility to others with a sense of responsibility to society, back to the very basic the corporation. Is it a creature of contract? Two people get together, they sign a contract, they invest. Is it a creature of concession? Um, as part of the history of corporations is that the Crown makes a concession to grant the right to form a corporation. There is a public trust, and I think for every employee and all the way up to the CEOs, recognizing that doing business partly depends on a public trust. It's not just an inherent individual right.
2: I think that's an Thank incredibly you. important point actually a very important point that people forget it is a privilege to be allowed to form a company or a corporation it gets the blessing of the state and certain certain benefits and privileges flow from that and 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 therefore you know the, the state has a role in in continuing to examine whether that whether those benefits and privileges should should, should flow not just in in relation to the tax regime but also in in relation to other aspects of of governance. That's that's the role that you discussed very eloquently of of, of the state in regulating corporations, but equally employees um, ought to be members of trade unions and they can engage in both partnership and challenge with their companies if they feel that uh, it's not a great place to work or indeed unethical things are happening in the way that that company is behaving. Consumers engage with companies. Uh, Loretta spoke uh, eloquently about the anti-apartheid struggles. Goodness me, wasn't that a great International movement of uh, consumers and voters and protesters and trade unions. It and indeed, was, corporations. In and indeed, reasons. corporations. Mm-hmm. Quite.
1: Well, thank you. If um, we're beginning to move into this territory of what we can, what we can do, what, what that might look like today. So I'm going to open this up for our first set of questions. Um, do please keep them coming in. Questions about what you've heard and questions about what you and we can do together about what we've had beyond election day. I'd like to ask uh, Bill Doherty, Stephen Hill, and Sammy Counder if they could uh, make their way to the microphone. And while they're doing that, um, there's a question from Kate Lever for Shami in particular. Shami, what effect do you think the mining of our metadata by government will have on our dignity?
2: Well, um, that is... I think one of the one of the fundamental human rights questions in the in, in the world today, and it is an international. Once more, it's an international issue. It's uh, it's it's technological and legal and and ethical. Um, the problem is that technology has moved apace, and I think that the ethical, political, and legal debates have not kept up. Now, if certain politicians or securocrats were, were sitting here or indeed certain people in business, they would say the innocent have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to fear from what they call the mining of metadata or communications data. They say it's not the content of your communications, it's the, it's the data about um who you were communicating with when and where and how and there's nothing to fear from that and I say this is not an old-fashioned world where the envelope that your letter was in can be called communications data and the contents is the is the meat that's just nonsense your mobile phone with certain settings activated will reveal um, not just that you not just who you were communicating with which web- websites you visited where you were those brilliant apps that will get you your nearest pizza will also show everybody else um, where you were. The website that you visited might show um, the mental health problems you had, your concerns about your health or sexuality, so on and so forth. And this is a lot of intimate information about people. And that level of information gathering is a power that, I'm afraid, is ripe for abuse. Not just by states, but it's not just about the big brother state. We can all be very unkind little brothers and sisters to each other as well, Mm. whether it's kids bullying each other on the internet, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, terrorists and criminals or, or just the abuse of, of commercial power. So I do think that we need to get much more of a handle on, um, on this, 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 this blanket surveillance and mining of everyone's intimate information.
1: Thank you. We're going to take the three questions and then give each panel member an opportunity to respond. So, Bill Doherty. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay?
5: Hi there, I framed my question as a self-confessed sceptic taken with the conjunction of politics,
0: business and the common good. Personally I'm hard-pressed to see
5: any signs of business working for the common good but for me the big issue, the big question is how do we stop business taking over our politics?
1: Thank you. Thank you. How do we stop business taking over our politics? Stephen Hill, we'll take the three questions and then give each panel member uh, an opportunity good evening. to
5: respond. Um, I'm a chartered surveyor and a land economist, so I'm very interested in land. It's kind of a rather special part of the way our society and our economy works, and it's a lot more than a commodity, which is how it's often treated. So my question, or really a proposition to you, is would you support setting up a People's Land Commission which would be led by civil society organisations to make proposals to government for land reform so that land could be used more effectively for the common good. And i called it the People's Land Commission um, because this was something that Churchill wrote about in the pre-First World War government. He wrote a series of pamphlets, one of which was called People's Land. Thank you,
1: thank you. And the third question, Sammy Cain.
0: Uh, good evening to all, to the panel. Uh, my name is Sami Um My questions are two questions into one, but it's slightly beyond what the topic of discussion is. But let me put it anyway, primarily to Shami Chakrabarti. Uh, what do the panel think about introducing ID cards, national ID cards, I mean, and also about how candidates' details, namely in the elections, uh, the ballot papers carry no details about pictures of the candidates or whatever. So somebody coming into the ballot box is often confused. Um, in fact, it sort of makes the election look touchy or touch and go, I should say. Thank so you. So why don't we put pictures in ballot papers and
1: make it easier? Thank, Thank you. you. So one, one very general question, one overview question about um, is business taking over our politics? Perhaps behind that, the worry that... Um, our common life seems to be... Questions about common life seem to be dominated by economics. And then two very particular uh, proposals, one about a People's Land Commission and the other about uh, ID cards. <laughs> um, so uh, let's take it from this end, Craig. Um, if we can have a kind of quick response. The really in quick you can, response we'll is questions that in.
5: Yeah, the role of money in politics is enormous and the... Um as we have allowed a election and campaign system to become more expensive, we've created incentives for people to look wherever they can to get the money to run for office, and looking to um, business, and particularly in this case, big business is looking where the money is. So it's not very surprising. The way to change that isn't um, simply to hector business; it is literally to reform the way campaigns are done. I happen to come from a country that is much worse than Britain. You should, you know, you can look at the U.S. example and see problems with campaign finance and and work to not go that way through much better regulation of campaign finance.
1: So a bit of a beware, something to avoid.
5: Um, (laughs) Any thoughts on the proposals about land? I think land is crucial. I have thought about it more in terms of urban land and actually the Churchill proposals involve both urban and rural land and thinking about was there a future for farming and things like that, which I haven't thought about as, as much and I suspect is a very different question today. But housing is a critical public issue in Britain. Um, We have no meaningful and successful policies to significantly change it and um, the, uh, the need for much more housing to be built, not for prices simply to be bid up, is partly a question genuinely about land and the way in which we regulate housing on land. It's partly a question about capital markets, partly a question about compact cities and and the way we design them. But one way or another, people's land commissioner, other means, this is a basic part of life together. Do we have the places to live? We are failing at the moment to provide that basis for life together in Britain. Thank you.
1: Loretta, how do we get our politics to be (laughs) focused back on the common good? What's the practical thing we need to do next? Um, Can I just pick up on one Mm. of the
4: questions I'd really like to if I could? Um, The one about business taking over Mm. politics, because it struck me as a great irony. We've had recently some legislation go through Mm. that was designed to um, ostensibly tackle the uh, danger that business would unduly influence politics, and instead of which it seemed to focus, in in our experience, more heavily on civil society. Lots of people saying charities should stick to their knitting, and that seemed to become rather the focus of the legislation. Um, I think that um, taking an international perspective on this, in too many countries it's very unclear what is the nature of businesses' purchase on the political landscape. And that's because there is wholly inadequate transparency about what business is actually doing. And I think that businesses would have, would be able to make a a much stronger contribution to the common good if they would accept a much higher degree of transparency, transparency, for example, about what profits they're making where and how and what tax they're paying where and how. And and we've encountered tremendous resistance over these last few years around these fairly basic propositions. But there's a real danger for businesses, it seems to me, because governments are incapable adequately of regulating businesses because businesses are often transnational and governments aren't, then businesses are terribly at risk in the longer term from, you know, being victims of each other's excesses because governments aren't reining them in. And I think the antidote to that is a higher degree of transparency which would equip businesses and civil society to curb the excesses of of businesses where governments are are not adequate uh, to the task. So, I just wanted to just pick up on that. But I think if there's one thing that I would say to everyone here about what each of us can do to help build the common good, apart from taking responsibility for our own immediate decisions um, about what we do in terms of things like buying goods and services, would be to get involved, to, uh, to find out about the issues that you think are too big for you to influence. Because almost any issue is capable of being influenced by you. And if you do not say what you feel and what you believe, then your voice is missing from the debate and no one else can replace that for you. You have a contribution which no one else can replace. Uh, and I, th- I find that sort of very daunting, but also, in the end, very encouraging. There's something that each of us can do. The person next to us can't do that. Mm. Uh, so we have a huge opportunity to equip ourselves on these global enemies like climate change and gender inequality. Find out. Find out what you can do. Go on our website, if you will, uh, and we'll give you some ideas about how you can campaign.
1: Thank you. I, d- I just want to, um, to kind of echo that in a way in, in, in terms of thinking about... Um, my own involvement as a parish priest in East London in the Living Wage Campaign, mm. uh, and the sense of that as something which had to start very small,
4: yeah.
1: um, but has now become really quite a, quite a movement. Mm. Um, and really just to think, well, what what's the, you know, what are the other ways in which we can break down what can seem when we discuss them like um, huge problems um, because of their scale, it can almost seem, what can we do next? But, um, mm. but there are encouraging examples of where uh, People have done that.
3: Let me land. It's very interesting Mm. in the UK. When we compare industry's productivity in the United States, which tends to be the leader, to other European countries, what you tend to find is the Europeans are behind in most countries because producers have managed to protect themselves by putting barriers in place so there's not so much competition. When it comes to Britain, The root cause of lower productivity is usually land and land usage. It's amazing how all-pervasive it is. Um, So, for instance, to give you an example, if you compare American hotel productivity with British hotel productivity, the Americans are much higher because they built newer hotels that are easier to clean. Now we may like our old hotels, but we're paying a price for them and there are so many different industries where you find British land regulation and building regulation leads to lower output. Now we might like to have it, but it would be nice to know how much we're paying for this And This is even before we get to housing. Yeah. So Land is really a big issue for our national output. And on business um, in politics, well, these imaginary people can write contracts, but they never got the vote. And I don't believe they should. That's up to real people to vote. Um, the question then becomes how best to regulate their activities. Uh, they find themselves often on a competitive treadmill. If somebody's giving money to politicians, then I better too, so I don't fall behind. And the only way, often out of that, is regulation, uh, is laws, our rules that everybody's in uh, an equal place. But transparency helps a lot because transparency then um, gets exposure to the public at large, to pension funds, um, and they themselves can start taking action if they find that some of the uh, political involvement is not to their taste or to their ethics.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I have a feeling our fourth panelist may have something to say about the ID cards question, which hasn't yet been picked up. I won't touch the
2: other questions because I I, I completely agree with what's been said about transparency in in, in political funding and the importance of of affordable housing in particular. And and that's a question of generational justice apart from um, anything else. But um, guess what? I was against identity cards. My comments are all over the public record. Um, The the bad legislation passed but in the end got repealed. And, uh, and uh, I, what was wrong with identity cards from my point of view was, was firstly, we have lived um, for a long time in a country where it is for the policeman or the immigration officer or whoever it is to initially identify him or herself to us and we don't have to go about our lives constantly identifying ourselves. We have all kinds of ID, you carry all sorts of ID, but it's purpose specific. It's a driving license to drive a car, it's a passport to cross international borders, but once you start creating um, um, a multi-purpose identity card for just to walk down the street, uh, that is an infringement of basic liberty and what's more, it invariably becomes a tool of race discrimination just as stop and search powers have been. So when continental friends um, say to me, oh well, we, carry, we carry ID cards it's not a problem in France, Germany, I say say that to the French Algerian say that to the Turk in Germany and they will tell you how discriminatory um, uh, a multi-purpose Compulsory identity card can be. Um, as to photos um, on, on ballot papers, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a it's, it's a massive problem. I think campaign literature um, uh, free, uh, very often carries photographs. Um, what I what I will say, however, is that. Um, some people are cynical and other people are more excited by um, by the current general election. Sometimes it doesn't feel so inspiring. It's like going to a restaurant that you've been to too many times before and what am I going to do? Am I going to have two starters and the goat's cheese salad again? And, um, and yet I would urge everybody to eat. You must eat. And I would just remind in, partic- in particular the the, the the women in the cathedral today that we have had the vote in this country for less than a hundred years. We talk about rights and freedoms. They were paid for in courage and blood, not least by the suffragists. It's going to be 2018 before we get 100 years of women having the vote. So we must use it or lose it. It seems to me. And I think if you, you know, think about all the ways you might vote, think of, you know, go to hustings, challenge people on particular issues. And if you can't, if you can't distinguish between them at all, vote for a woman.
1: Thank you very much. Can I ask Catherine Oconquo, Daniel Arthur and Clifford Longley to come to the microphone uh, and it, while that's happening, uh, could ask the panel to address the question, isn't the problem with corporations that many are global but their regulation isn't? Mm-hmm. Loretta, do you want to give us an initial thought on that?
6: I think.
4: I absolutely agree and that was the point I was trying to make earlier and certainly in financial regulation you saw the repercussions of that. Because although there is co- cooperation between financial regulators and um, there isn't actually one global standard of financial regulation that's systematically enforced. And we saw very, very clearly the shortcomings of that um, not very long ago. And indeed I once spent 14 billion pounds in one day um, sorting some of that out. So. Um, Absolutely, that is a very, very big part of the problem. I don't think in our lifetimes, well, maybe in our lifetimes, but I don't think in the short term we're going to see the construction of a a global system of government that is wholly effective. And that's why we all have to keep playing our part. That's why transparency, increased transparency is so important and why we can't leave it just to governments in the end. Uh, to do that kind of regulatory work for us, and civil society has that kind of regulatory role to play.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Can I ask uh, Catherine to ask her question? <coughs>
6: Hello. Hello. Um, Dolce et decorum est pro parte amore. Um Forgive my Latin diction. I, didn't, I went to a state school. so. Um, but it's a sweet and honourable thing to die for your country, uh, in today's society, we're not all called to draft up and go and fight people, but there is sacrifice and responsibility like we've spoken about in today's discussion. Um, and self-sacrifice is one of them. For instance, the DEC appeal for Nepal has raised 19 million in its first day, which goes to, say, goes to show that people do sacrifice their money, their time, their energy. Um, and in a building as exquisite as this, you can't help but think of a sacrifice in terms of God and His sacrifice of His Son Jesus for mankind, whether you believe in it or not. Um, but my question is this: uh, as much as Christianity may play a role in people's personal lives, what role does it play, or can it play, in in terms of politics and business?
1: Thank you. The role of Christianity in all of this. Daniel. Yes. Good evening. My name is Daniel Arthur.
0: I have a question about foreign policy and quite a few comments made about international affairs. My question is, what role should the United Kingdom play in the future of world affairs?
1: Thank you.
2: That was a small question.
1: Yeah, it was. <laughs> we had two small questions: religion in all of public life and the UK in future of foreign affairs. Clifford Longley.
0: Uh, yes, my, my name is Clifford Longley. Uh, my interest is that I was the author of a report published recently by Theos, one of the sponsors of tonight's event called Just Money, which was an assault on market fundamentalism from the perspective of Catholic social teaching. End of commercial. My question is, <laughs> is neoliberalism dead, and if not, how do we kill it?
1: <laughs> I have the sensation of having had three questions, each of which we could spend an entire evening on, uh, and an awareness that we have approximately 11 minutes for the panel to respond to them at most. So, um,
5: Craig, would you like to kick us off on whichever of those you think is. I'll give it a try. I won't answer all of them or I'd talk too much. <laughs> so, but very quickly, I think the question about. Christianity is important and it goes not only for Christianity so I'll answer as a Christian in terms of this but it would be the same for all If we are to really take seriously the idea that we have values and that values can guide us in public life, religion is one of the great sources, not just for the values, but for the capacity to talk about and think about and have a public discourse about the values. So the issues of raised in just money, raised by um, Justin Welby, around the issues of money and how do we temper the tyranny of markets? Actually, religious voices have been among the most effective in raising the questions about how we temper that tyranny. And that tyranny is part of the idea that gets associated with the term neoliberalism. Um, The uh, notion that um, if we just have a defense of the individual decision makers and the markets, we somehow can successfully organize society on this basis. And that's, um, I think, a very dangerous idea. We've seen some terrorists. The other side of that is more than individuals, more than markets. It's not just a matter of empowering individual decision makers, but empowering our collective discourse, empowering the public. And that means government, it means other kinds of institutions. A last point on the issue of, of UK and world affairs, it's important to ask that question, because it is the case that nations still matter. So while Chame is right to say we are all, in some sense, internationalists, and made that clear, we shouldn't hear words like internationalism or cosmopolitanism as alternatives to say, taking seriously the countries we live in. We need a both-and consciousness in which we, we don't let the international become a substitute, right? It is, we have actions here at home and in local areas that are just as important, and for some people, the best way to express their broader concerns for human rights or values. The UK and world affairs has a, a very significant recent past to build on in being a country that supports the achievement of effective um, multilateral relationships in the world. Think of Gordon Brown and the G20 in the time of the financial crisis. The UK isn't the global hegemonic power. It is a country that can work to knit together cooperation among other countries. And we need a lot of that cooperation to deal with migration, to deal with financial crisis, to deal with climate change. Thank you, Loretta.
4: Thank you. Um, on the the role of Christianity, I'm building on what you said, th- three three more things I would say. One one is that you know. Uh, it it, it can serve to be the impulse for attending to, to basic needs where they're not otherwise being met. And you know, at the moment, with, with the churches providing food banks all over the country or you know, all over the global south, the churches and other faith institutions of other faiths are meeting a lot of basic needs. And you know, that's not ideal in the long term, but it's serving a current purpose. And, and then I think there's a second role that churches can play, for better or worse, and that's influencing social norms. And I would say that you know, churches can deal, in, as we've seen churches deal all over the global south with issues of great sensitivity around things like the stigma of HIV I'd like to see churches taking that up and other faith institutions taking up that role to address social norms around gender equality uh, because that is is, is one of the great scourges that drives poverty at the moment and something that Christian Aid is working on. And the third thing is that um, Christianity can speak truth to power you know, Jesus is the role model, Jesus showed by by his willingness to stand up for what was important and make himself, you know, ultimately vulnerable for what really matters, um, what, what kind of life we are as Christians called to, um, to speak truth to power. And uh, I think, that, uh, you know, when I hear politicians talking about the upcoming encyclical that the Pope seems to promised around climate change. I think there's a, a great sense that that could be very, very material in the way things develop over the coming few months in the run-up to the UN meeting in Paris. So I think that Christianity shows itself uh, being potentially hugely powerful both at basic needs, social norms and in relation to political
3: change. Thank you. Connor. Well, as I, I said in the opening statement, we expect companies to obey the law but also to live within society's norms. So I think that's where Christianity and the dignity of the individual more generally plays an important role, I'm reasonably optimistic. Look what happens now if it's found out that a company is using child labor. That may be cheaper but it's just completely unacceptable or when a company damages the environment and way to reinforce that of course is to get engaged. I'm also a bit more optimistic about international regulation. It's far from perfect but laws such as the UK Bribery Act have impact. Throughout the world. They set different norms, different standards. So, I do think that the advocacy of the dignity of the individual mobilises us all, and we do make a difference to how businesses behave. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure.
2: Well, I don't feel it's for me to, to lecture anyone about how their faith should influence their politics, but I, I would just observe that... Um, I think the most positive role of of, of anyone's individual ethical system or faith in their social action, and in their politics is when um, it's when they show the love and not the discrimination or the hate. So I prefer the, the Loretta, Loretta Minghella version of faith in politics to some other versions that we have seen. So more attention to poverty please and less obses- obsession with sexuality on occasion. And uh, as to the role that the UK should, should play in the future of the world, um, I think I'd say the the UK must seek to play a role in the future of the world and not seek to be introspective or or, or to turn its back on the world because there is no future for anyone in the UK or anywhere else, as I say, in such a shrinking interconnected um, global environment.
1: Thank you very much. Um, We've covered a lot of big themes in uh, that last discussion. And we're now moving towards... Uh, the panel's closing remarks um, each member of the panel gets a couple of minutes to uh, respond to the whole discussion and in particular to focus on the question of what one person uh, can do I said at the start, I think this is true of um, all the events that St Paul's Institute arrange of this kind um, that the real success of an event like this um, is the way it equips uh, each of us to do something different and and so we're going to close by giving each of the panellists an opportunity as they draw these threads of discussion about the common good together to, to, to think a little bit and to offer us all um, some thoughts about what we can practically individually in our communities and workplaces do. Craig.
5: Okay. I will choose three topics. The. A point about one person doing something, I'll just illustrate by reference to the living wage, which has already been referred to. The LSE um, is a living wage employer. My first encounter with this was a single first-year LSE student coming to me, Richard Sarnioki, and saying, do you know about the living wage campaign? We need to sponsor this. I said, don't we already? Seems like we should. And we proceeded to move and do it. Now, my point about that is it's a single student. It wasn't a massive social campaign. There was a massive social campaign. Um, My arrival three years ago in the country brought a single student to me with the word. I think there are innumerable opportunities for individuals to do things, often by interacting with others. And um, this is just an example. I'll reflect on an absence. It's interesting that Europe hasn't figured frankly hasn't figured much in the election, despite UKIP Um, and the campaign so far, hasn't figured in our discussion, but it's an example of something pretty big and momentous that could happen in our lives without there ever being a big public debate about it, without really having engaged in a collective um, discussion. And I'll close by returning to the question that didn't get attention about sacrifice. And I think this is actually an important theme in various ways not just because we should all sacrifice ourselves and die for our country, um, which conjures a rather militaristic image of the way patriotism works, but because we should recognize that giving can be important, that we have a society enormously structured around getting, and um, thinking in terms of how we can give is a really critical thing. And it's an occasion for redefining the good so I think it's not just that we say we accept values like extremely militaristic uh, milit- values, extremely um, monetaristic, property-oriented values, of uh, utilitarian values. If we are serious about asking ourselves what we want to be, part of what that means is sacrificing in some aspects of our lives to embrace a different concept of the good. And I think that that's important for us to ask, what kinds of good do we want? And this conversation's talked about several of those. Do we want to be better off at the expense of other people, um, child laborers or whoever in the world, modern day slavery? Do we want to pursue an image of security that involves an island nation um, erecting borders around itself that are impermeable? impermeable? Do we have a higher sense of the good that is also not just a sacrifice, it is an embrace of a good that we can achieve for ourselves? Thank you.
4: Loretta. Thank you. It's quite hard to follow that. Um, I think, just listening to the discussion, I think we've got some choices that we need to make. We need to ask ourselves, in the light of everything that we've heard, you know, what kind of world is it that we actually want to live in? Um, and we, I think we all know, I think Shami's absolutely right, we don't want to, to, to think of the world as, as London or um, you know, England, We want to think of ourselves as citizens of the world. I think everyone here has echoed that. With with that comes responsibility to to play a part, to be informed, to speak out, uh, to be willing to connect. And if there's anything in the common good, I think there's a shared view here that it is about connection. Um, And the last thing I'd say is... I go back to something I said in my talk about the power of vulnerability. We do have to be willing to take risks and allow others to take risks because what we're talking about involves change and change is always a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit risky and we won't always succeed. We have to give ourselves the chance to fail and learn. We have to give other actors the chance to fail and learn. Um, So I I would close with the thought that it's about conviction, what do we really want? It's about connection, the willingness to reach out, and it's about about the willingness to be vulnerable.
3: Thank you. Well, um, I met one chief executive officer a few years ago who was taking a much more long-term view. And I said, well, why is this happening? He said, I was very impressed by the Arab Spring. I met one of the leaders of the Arab Spring, and he told me he had recruited on Facebook, rallied on Twitter, and communicated on YouTube. He said, if my consumers start doing that, and if I'm not behaving well, and occasionally I won't behave well, um, I'd better be attentive because they've got real power. So please do choose your campaign, but get engaged as a consumer, as an employee and please don't forget to get engaged as a member of a pension fund they're the ones with the votes and they often neglect to vote them choose your campaign use the power of social media because it really is very powerful and it does change attitudes and then a second piece of advice which is much more narrow if you're a director of a company in the u.s and you speak to a lawyer you'll tend to get very narrow advice Anything that drives the share price up in the short term is good, anything that drives it down is bad. So if you know any U.S. Lo- lawyers, encourage them to take a broader view. <laughs> Thank
2: you. So as, as we see here today, um, uh, church is not just for Sunday or for Christmas, and politics is not just for once every five years when you, when you cast your vote. And Yes, there are all sorts of challenges, but we also have enormous opportunities as well, not least with new and social media, the opportunity to connect with with campaigns and peoples all over the world. I would say, wouldn't I, join Liberty, give to Christian Aid, but also also live your values in your home, in your workplace, in your shopping basket uh, and everywhere else. And, And I do have hope. Someone once told me after I'd given a very grim and worthy speech about human rights, violations that was wonderful shami but please remember that Martin Luther King never said I have a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> sure. so personal engagement and, and solidarity and um, it's been a wonderful evening thank you
1: thank you very much I think it's fair to say that uh, in the run-up to the election the the church had the slightly depressing sensation that when it tried to say something publicly and corporately about small p-politics, it was immediately flattened into an analysis of which paragraph of the bishop's letter was secretly supporting which political party. And I think one of the great things about tonight's discussion and the part that the panel and the questions have played in it is a strong sense that there is something substantial, uh, meaningful that can make a difference, which is a conversation about that broader vision of politics. What are our convictions? How do we build connections with one another, Um, predictably perhaps one uh, piece of action I want to encourage you to think about immediately is whether you want to buy one of the books that is available on discount at the front, Uh, there's Shami's new book and there's also uh, a collection of essays from Together for the Common Good, one of the uh, sponsors of tonight's event, a great collection with essays by people with very different Uh, religious and humanist worldviews and political convictions uh, about how we work together for the common good, Uh, a book that talks about that in the kind of way we've tried to tonight, both uh, with some big theoretical questions but also with some very practical examples of uh, what you can do. So it just really remains for me to say thank you uh, to our speakers for helping us so much to think through these issues Uh, in that constructive way and in a way that I hope has left you feeling equipped to do something, to thank the Dean and Chapter of St Paul's Cathedral and the St Paul's Institute and Theos and Together for the Common Good uh, for making this possible, but to above all uh, to thank you for being here and engaging in this conversation. Thank you very much uh, and good night.